listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marina Buxov, holistic health coach, clinical herbalist, and functional medicine pharmacist, or just holistic pharmacist for short. Whether you're a healthcare professional helping to support the health of your clients or going through your personal healing journey, I believe you will find yourself right at home with this podcast. My co-hosts and I will be merging the scientific with the holistic all season long, as well as sharing stories that will touch your heart and challenge your mind. Please enjoy the show. Hey everyone, get ready to deconstruct everything you've ever thought about the field of mental health and psychology. Today, I'm honored to bring in the esteemed holistic physician, restorative coach, podcaster, psychiatric expert witness at Welcome to Humanity, Dr. Fred Moss. Dr. Fred has been actively practicing in the mental health field internationally for over 40 years and as a psychiatrist has been an unwavering stand for the transformation of the prevailing, disempowering conversation that encompasses the industry globally. He is a firm believer that conversation, communication, creativity, and human connection are ultimately at the source of all healing of all conditions in all fields. Along with being a highly successful restorative transformational coach, his signature technology, True Voice Podcasting, is for people who are ready to take their lives back by speaking their authentic message into the world. TVP is designed to guide people from all walks of life who are ready to discover the confidence and courage necessary to bring their full and real humanity back into all areas of their life. Dr. Fred's conversation and talks are designed to be thought-provoking and compelling and leave audiences refreshed and revitalized with a sense of what it really means to be a human being. Dr. Fred Moss, MD, is the foremost expert on delivering your true voice into the world so that it can heal. Your voice matters. Your voice can heal. So without further ado, let's welcome him to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, I have a really exciting guest with me today uh, and to share with you, of course, his name is Dr. Fred Moss, and he is a recovering psychiatrist and a restorative coach. Did I get that right? You did. That was well done. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Dr. Fred, I'd love to get into the core of your work and what you do, which is really, really exciting with transformation and communication and changing the way we think about mental illness. But before we get there, I'd love to first ask you about your background and, uh, you know, where you grew up and how you even came to do this work. All right. Wow. That's great. So uh, thank you for having me on your show. It's great to be here. And so the background is like this. I arrived uh, on Earth 64 years ago and 64 years and a couple weeks, actually. Um, And I was brought here to bring communication, joy and connection to the planet. And I know that because the four people that were waiting for me were my two older brothers, 10 and 14 years older than me and my two parents. And they were just kind of waiting for me to pop out and bring joy to their chaos and you know their life that was in pretty significant disarray at the time, apparently. So I've served that purpose as a full-time job from the first second that I arrived here. And uh, it hasn't been a straight and easy ride, but it has been a committed and dedicated ride. So communication and connection, you know, I really was enamored, even from the playpen, watching my family speak to each other and really getting that inside of their communication, they might have different ideas about how things were going. What was this talking and listening that they were creating? And I was, you know, I was always enchanted and always like interested and curious um, to become a great communicator. So I was precocious and uh, they taught me how to, you know, read and write and add and subtract before I went to kindergarten. So I was, you know, ahead of the class and probably a little bored. And um, there's no elementary school teacher that 
doesn't remember having Fred in their class for sure. And uh, I, I went through, you know, went through school really looking and learning and wanting to be a great communicator, whether that be through being funny or being informative or being creative or healing another, being with people. I really saw the magic in that. And um, I was always hoping that the next level would teach me how to be a supreme communicator. So maybe junior high, maybe in junior high. But when I got there, they were even more immature. And I was like, okay, high school's gotta be where this goes. It's, it's high school, it's where people grow up, where the big kids are. And I got there and disappointed again. And was like, oh, just pick a good university. And you know, there'll be great people at the university. And then I can learn how to finally be a communicating master, a master of communication. So I went to the University of Michigan and um, hung out there. I love Ann Arbor and everything, but I loved Ann Arbor a little bit too much and school didn't really fit. So I ended up dropping out of college. Um, and I got in my bus, I got in a Greyhound bus and came all the way to California to find my life and you know, this and that all over the country. And uh, that worked out pretty good for a while. And then it was like, I should probably go back to school. So I went back to school at Michigan again and it didn't work out again. I was like, oh, I because I couldn't just sit there and learn what a teacher was giving me and that by regurgitating as exact as possible that which they said. You know, you just had difficulty with restorative coach and recovering psychiatrist. You have to remember that stuff just to be a good student, you know? <clears throat> that wasn't communication to me, so I dropped out again. And I um, came home, told my mom in January of 1980 that, I'm never, ever, ever going back to college again. That's it. This bullshit. So she said, okay, well, you got to get a job then. So she got me a job at a state mental health facility uh, for adolescents. And this was cool because I had just been an adolescent a few years earlier. So uh, so it was like I, I related to these kids and I saw none of them as being sick at all. They were all just in the situation that they were in. And I would have conversations with them that were connections, you know, that were true. And I worked afternoon shift and we could talk and talk and talk and do field trips and play baseball and eat dinner. And and I grew to love that job, um, as weird as that was. And it was really interesting that I healed, they healed, and I could be a human and still bring home a paycheck. Like, it was like really interesting that I could learn and be with communication from the ground up and just be with, I call them kids, but they were just people, humans, you know? The thing I hated about that job, and I did hate one piece of it, was the way that psychiatrists dealt with the kids. That's what I couldn't stand. And, you know, we would call a psychiatrist and say, Jimmy's up too late or Timmy and Johnny just got in a fight or Sally doesn't listen to the nurse or something. And the psychiatrist would come <clears throat> do a quick evaluation, maybe, depending, they didn't have to because they already had enough information who needs to talk to the patient after all. And they would do a, a quick evaluation and then they'd get in the chart, write an order, and then we'd have to hold the kid down and inject them through it full of some antipsychotic or something until they were subdued. And if they said nothing for the next 12 or 24 hours, we could say that was a success. And there was just something just horrible about that. Just so completely like heart-wrenchingly terrible. And I was like, um, my brother was a psychiatrist already, my 14 years older than me. And I was like, well, I'm going to go in back into psychiatry. I'm going to bring communication as a primary source of healing into psychiatry. I'm going to go somehow head towards medical school. That's pretty lofty because after all, I just told you, I'm not going back to college ever. And uh, it's a little ways between being a two-time college dropout, homeless, you know, the whole thing to becoming a psychiatrist after all. Right. I started on the path and I stayed a child care worker the whole time. Uh, so even when I, so, you know, I finished, I finished uh, school at Wayne State. I stayed a child care worker at the same facility until I was done and then got uh, to Chicago where I went to medical school at Northwestern and continued my moonlighting job as a child, I did as child care worker. I was child care worker the whole time in medical school, you know? And so I'm primarily a child care worker. I'm just a glorified child care worker who went and got an MD on the side. And uh, 
So when I graduated medical school and, and then, you know, just, there I was ready to pick my residency and I picked psychiatry and then got my fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry um, in Cincinnati and then had two children of my own. Um, I was off and running. But in the meantime, you know, we uh, psychiatry went through a big change in 1987. And in that year, Prozac was introduced to the world. And Prozac's introduction to the world was as was as uh, was as substantial as any of the issues going on in our world right now. Let's put it that way. Prozac was on the cover of Newsweek alone, just a picture of Prozac and a picture of Prozac on Time in the same week. Newsweek wow. and Time had Prozac on there because Prozac was the life-changing event that was going to create the situation that any type of discomfort could be considered pathological and then dealt with. There was talk about putting Prozac into the water system in uh, Los Angeles and in New York City. And it was like, you know, there was a real opportunity to look at how communication was no longer the source inside of psychiatry. The only thing that psychiatry was now headed towards was biological chemical imbalances. And that's an imbalance was synonymous with if you were uncomfortable with life, you were sick. You first had to make that equation. And people did. I'm sad. That's how the word clinical depression came out. That's how the word clinical anxiety came out. That's how so many diagnoses came on the back end of the introduction, introduction to Prozac because medicines would get created, you know, because after Prozac, you had Zoloft, you had Paxil, and then you had the atypical antipsychotics, the, you know, the Zyprexas and all those, uh, Seroquels and Respirals and all those that were built on the heels of Haldol and um and uh, Thorazine and the old the old agents, which sucked in the first place. Yeah, Clozapine. Uh, they just sucked. They were horrible, as were the anxiety agents. Valium as mama, but all of them afterwards, they just got more and more refined, more and more, um, you know, euphoric producing Ativan or Xanax or Halcyon and all those. And gosh, before I knew it, and you can hear it right now, I had become a psychopharmacological expert, an international psychopharmacological expert. No shit. It was like the last thing I wanted to do. And now I was prescribing meds every single day as an expert for how they either work or don't work or how they're mm, how they represent or misrepresent that which would they do, how they perpetuate their own symptoms, how they are dangerous in that right or interact in that right or what, you know, like all of a sudden I was doing that, which I went into the field to alleviate. I was like on the other side of, you could almost say enemy lines, but not really, you know, I still had an opportunity to meet patients and I met lots of patients. So the estimate is that in my career since 1989 or so, I suppose 1990, you know, when the residency that I've put my note in 40,000 charts. Um, around 40,000 is an accurate number with all the work that I've done. And I have worked in every nook and cranny that American psychiatry has to offer. I've been in, I've been in nursing homes, I've been in homeless shelters, orphanages, I've been in prisons and jails and outpatients and inpatients and home visits and emergency rooms and partial hospital programs. And nursing homes, I, you know, really everywhere. And I've been peer, you know, I've done peer review. I've done utilization review. I've done insurance coverages. I've done DWCs and all of my CV kicks ass. Okay. My CV is ridiculous and it kicks ass because I left jobs. In some ways, it was like, yes, thank you for the opportunity to dig so far in here, but it still doesn't rock my soul. It's, mm. As a matter of fact, it still sacrifices my soul. What you are eventually are asking me to do doesn't work for me at a soul level, and I need to move on now. Thank you so much for the opportunity to, to be with you. Right. And I have, I have a CV that represents that. It looks great, though. I'm telling you. It's <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> um. 
And so over time, again, we'll, we'll fast forward a little bit, 2006, for lots of reasons, there was a lot of things going on personally and professionally. And there was an opportunity to make some degree of a paradigmatic shift. And I did that. Um, it wasn't a simple year at all. It was a very difficult year. And I appreciate that. I started, one of the things I started doing was taking people off of medicine, taking my more stable patients right off their antidepressants, their Prozac, their Zoloft and their Paxil and whatever generics they were on at that point. And um, <clears throat> they got better. Reliably. Always. It was like pretty interesting. Wow. Like they were doing pretty good. They were like, I'm good. I'm all right. At least my depression, I'm only have depression twice or three times this week. And that's pretty good for me. And then I would take them off and then they would have no more depression. And I was like, well, this is really interesting. So then I started expanding it a little bit in my own way, you know, because doctors aren't really taught. And I think your audience knows this, you know, we're, we're only taught to add change or increase medicines. Right. Those are your three choices. If someone comes in and they have some symptom complex, we can start. This is doctors. We can start a medicine. And once we do that, there's only three directions to go. Add, increase or change. Mm -hmm. Now, we can decrease if we think there's a direct related side effect. But if we decrease, we're going to have to supplement it with something else to deal with the fact that we thought we had to increase it last time. So that's when we add another medicine, you know. And that's just the way the algorithm goes. I, I love doctors. I don't have a problem with doctors. They're fine. You know, my best friends or some of them are doctors. It's all good. <laughs> but, but the medicines don't work to do anything except perpetuate the symptoms they're marketed to treat in many cases. And sometimes actually even cause the symptoms that they're marketed to treat, which is a pretty good business model just between me and you. Like if we were to design a product that actually caused the symptoms it was marketed to treat, we could probably get pretty rich pretty fast. Maybe we could even like become one of the most like profitable industries in the history of planet Earth, because that's what the psychopharmacological industry did. Right. The paradoxical so, effects. It's a, yeah, it's like a paradoxical isn't even paradoxical, totally reliable paradoxical <laughs> effects. <laughs> so <clears throat> we call it paradoxical, but it honestly isn't. It's completely reliable and predictable. And when we start getting that, when we start getting that, there was an opportunity to see that the only way I could save my soul in some ways, it's a little, maybe a little large, was to continue to mm, ex continue to uh, have communication and connection be the source of all healing. And at the same time, really tell my patients and their families and the care, maybe other clinicians that, um, Although you think you need medicine, although you're coming to me and I'm the only one who can prescribe it for you, I'm not so sure this is such a great idea. And I'm kind of sure that it's actually not a great idea. And people would get furious with me. Like they just get flat out furious that they had found me. They'd gone through all their changes, come to my office, want some meds. And there I was telling them that meds weren't that good. Right. And they would, they'd just be pissed. I'd be like, oh, well, all right, look, here's your meds. You know, and I'd have, again, soul sacrifice every day. So now we get pretty close. So let's go to 2000, let's say 2016. By that time, I'd been doing telepsychiatry uh, like this, Zoom psychiatry mm -hmm. for around the world. I'd traveled around the world. I lived in Israel, I lived in Europe. I lived, you know, and I was, you know, into urban Illinois or you know, suburban California. And um, I uh, just another specialty that I had. And I would, you know, and I came back, came back to the U.S., got a job in some prisons in California, figuring that that was like the one last place that it was maybe I could make a difference. But that was also deeply disappointing. I worked at Folsom. I worked at Pelican Bay here in California and uh, decided, you know, eventually decided that I could build a coaching practice, build a restorative coaching practice, a transformational co to coaching practice and really get people. I wrote some cool articles. I wrote an article called uh, um, um, What If Mental Illness Was Just a Conversation? And then I wore a I, that was a really fun article. I wrote another article called uh, Global Madness, What We Must All Do to Unite, which kind of predicted our present situation. Um, and uh, 
I began to write and I began to listen and I began to coach and I began to even pull off of promising my clients that I would do anything with their medicines. I will instruct you how to talk to whoever you think is your prescriber about how to do your medicines. I'm still a doctor, but I'm not going to prescribe any medicines and I'm not going to prescribe to come off them. I'm not your prescriber. I'm not your prescriber. I am your coach. I am your transformational ally. I am the one who, if you're really sick and tired of staying sick and tired, if you're really, really tired of that, I might be able to walk you through re-optimizing your life by getting that discomfort and misery and pain and suffering are actually part of being human. I know. What a radical <laughs> idea, right? Like, it, like they're nothing wrong with you if you have that going on in this insane, challenging world. Mm -hmm. If you have that going on, it's really great, actually. Like, enjoy the ride with the embracing of all that life has to offer, including the deeply unpleasant stuff. Now, I really want to say it because some listeners somehow hear different, and that is, under no circumstances am I diminishing the pain and suffering by saying something like it's all in your head or get over it or pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm actually giving it a deeper legitimacy. Like it's totally real. Like I like pain is totally real. I'm not saying you made that shit up. No. Some people think, well, what do you mean I'm not bipolar? I am like. You, because you're not bipolar, you're you. You know, bipolar got made way after you. There's no, you know, this idea that you have a surge of feelings in multiple different directions could be an attribute if you want it to be. And I get it. It's really, really sad and scary sometimes. And it's really exciting and fascinating at other times. And it can flip on a dime. Okay, I totally get it. And there's something about really getting that Taking on a mental illness and then taking on the treatment for that mental illness, as, which is a tacit agreement that there's something wrong with you, creates that something wrong for you psychologically. But it also, when you're eating or injecting or putting a patch on or whatever you're doing uh, to deal with it, um, simply often perpetuates the symptoms that it's marketed to treat, even physiologically at times. So as a nutritionist, as someone, you know, someone who's really taking on this world and using plant medicines or whatever else you're, you teach, you already know that. You already know that we can change the course of how things go by ingesting different items that bring forth optimized health. Laboratory-based antidepressants, antipsychotic, and anti-anxiety agents don't fall into that category at all. They just don't. There's not one of them that does. Maybe ketamine, but that would be a whole different game. Maybe ketamine. But even ketamine's about to get all twisted up. So even ketamine or even psilocybin. I mean, once this stuff makes it into the into the conversation, it's interesting. But once the companies start getting their claws on it, it becomes a little bit less interesting about how it gets marketed and who gets to write it and how much you get to write, what the proper dose is, what da-da-da-da-da. It's like... Eh we start running into some problems with jurisdiction pretty immediately once you start ingesting those things inside of um, formal conventional mental health systems. All right, we fast forward to now. I am, um, I, by this point, I, I suppose I haven't surprised anyone in this, in this listenership. I love talking. I love listening. I love communicating. And I, I, uh, you know, my elementary school teachers will attest to that. And the, I became naturally a podcaster. When I, you know, when I started seeing that, oh yeah, podcasting is a great way to communicate. I can meet super cool people as a guest, as a host. I can make a difference. I can have fun. You know, it's like the last remaining vestige of a, of a uncensored, unmonitored, uncancelable culture. Almost now we got Joe about to be canceled here and there, but yeah, you know, that's it. It took him a minute to be able to find a way to mess with podcasting, and um, and so I did that and. Uh, I teach podcasting to people. So I take people from zero to, to world-class podcaster in 13 weeks. And the thing that's really fun for me is, uh, you know, 
I'm now aligned with finding my true voice because I'm no longer that psychiatrist. I am a recovering psychiatrist. I no longer am doing things misaligned with who I know better to be. Um, so I am remarkably well aligned with what I stand for. And there's no ums, ands, or buts anymore. It's just like, wow, I get to be a healer. Um, I'm back to being a healer. I'm back to being a listener. I'm back to being pretty radical. And it's funny what radical means because all radical means is the same stuff that little Freddie was seeing when he was in his playpen, that communication, uh, connection, creativity, and conversation remain at the heart of all healing of all conditions of all types. And, um, I'll take that to my grave. That's just a freaking truth. And so that, you know, that's just the truth. That's just the truth. You, without that, you're not going to heal. With that, at least you have a shot and uh, not just a small shot, a real shot. When you connect with another person, it's amazing what happens when another person hears you and then can love you and vice versa, because that's that's where this resilience and this human life force resides. And uh, healing is a natural process that came with us when we arrived. Wow. Wow. You asked for it. I, I did ask for it. And that was a fascinating journey. Thank you so much for taking us on that journey, that personal history and the professional journey as well. Uh, I think you're speaking to many people out there that are listening because, as I mentioned before we got on, uh, that a lot of them are in the allopathic field. And so they can really resonate with not feeling like they're aligned at the soul level, but feeling like there is no other setting or having gone through different settings like yourself and still not finding it. And then kind of just desensitizing themselves and resigning to the fact that, okay, well, you know, this is the system. I have to be part of it and I have to pay the bills for myself and my family. And I have this degree, you know, so I'm going to just go, go and continue doing this because these are the only opportunities that exist, even though they're not truly aligned. So, uh, you know, I really respect your journey and it's very clear to me that you're a master communicator with the way you presented it. It shows such a deep level of self-reflection and awareness of every part of the stage that was driving you and really showing you your purpose. And so you really walked us through how you discovered your true purpose and how it was apparent from the beginning, but it took you a lot of different iterations to act on these things and to get expertise on these things and walking through the other side of it showed you that, you know, really the first side was the true side, you know, and, and there's deviations and veering off the true path. But in, in the end, you know, hopefully the, the goal is for you to realign and come into your authentic self and speak your authentic message. And the way you speak it was, you know, just with pure confidence. And there's no doubt in my mind that you're an amazing transformational coach for your clients. Thank you. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know, you know, it's it, what makes it so interesting to me. There's something hilarious, you know, there's something hilarious about what might appear to be a minimalist reductionist notion of it all that little Freddie and his playpen had it all. Yeah. He did. I did. I am him. And I it's true. I've been on a whale's journey for, you know, 60 years through all this stuff, like going right into the belly of the beast, you know, going I, 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 like right into the middle. I was, a, you know, I was a keynote speaker as a representative for um, Eli Lilly. I was like, really interesting. I was that guy. I actually made some money being a keynote speaker traveling around the country, speaking to the power of Zyprexazitis at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I really bought, by the way, by the way, I really thought that drug was going to be something different because it was marketed as such. But then, you know, afterwards, I got I got a greater understanding like, oh, oh, I see how that works, you know, and um, I'm now not very much a proponent for any, any uh, um, conventional medications, but some of them might say, well, you know, my sister, she has, she has social phobia or something. And my, my brother, he's got a schizoaffective disorder or something. 
So don't you, you know, he needs his medicines because it makes him better. And uh, I don't argue with that. And frankly, he should keep taking his medicine. And if you found something that is actually working, you should keep doing it for sure. If everyone's happy with that, everything's working, you should just absolutely, without question, keep doing it for sure. For sure. If you have found a solution to the problems you're looking for, um, then you should keep them. The problem is, is that we all know, or frequently many of us know, that it's not really working. And what's really happening is that we're quelling symptoms, but we're not just quelling. Unfortunately, if all we were doing, this idea of a Band-Aid is a very benign way of looking at this, like it's a Band-Aid, like it's sort of taking care of things. It's not. It's much more like a a Band-Aid with a razor blade embedded in it. Not, now it's it's not just a band. It is a band aid. You put it on over your cut. The cut actually stops bleeding, and then it starts oozing out of the sides a little more when the razor blade gets done with it. And then you decide, thank God I got a band aid on this thing because this cut got way worse. Right. And now you just buy a bigger band aid, which has a deeper razor blade in it, and um, off to the races and. The other thing is, is that I really want people to get this one, too, because I think I think that this is really important. I've had different periods of time where I was aiming at big pharma as being the evil or aiming at the medicine as being the evil or the insurance or the allopathic system or the uh, you know medical schools or the, uh, uh, you know, the infrastructure. And it's easy to point fingers at those things as if they're the problem, but it doesn't really matter. You know, the system is so beautiful. It's so insanely beautiful to provide in in a diabolical way. It's to provide, (laughs) you know, to provide that level of. It isn't just financial profit. People people wake up in the morning and stand in line, as you know, as a pharmacist, I guess, you know, they stand in line around the corner at CVS so that they can get their prescription for the mm-hmm. month. Yeah. People's lives are built on this shit. Totally. And it's quite an industry. If you can make billions of dollars a day in profit, you have developed quite a company. Oh, kudos, like seriously good work. It's not your problem that your company works. Your company works because it works. You see, no one's forcing people to stand in line before the pharmacy opens. The idea here is the access point is the person who takes the medicine. Yeah. And that access point is um, is Im- uh, embedded in really thinking there's something wrong with you for which you need medicine. So actually, it's not only the medicine, it's then the person who chooses to ingest it. But more than that, why are you ingesting it? Because you have become convinced that there is something afflicted, affected, defective, ill, diseased about you that has you need some sort of man-made laboratory-based chemical imbalancing rebalancer. Like if you believe that really Swampland in Brooklyn is for you and, and it's like, and I'm not putting down the people who are taking what they think are the right combination of medicines to get their act together. And, you know, they haven't changed their doses in a few years and they feel pretty good about this is as good as it gets. And all it's created is just a few more diseases, but not too many. And it works for them. Then they should keep doing that. Uh, It's for the people who are freaking tired of this stuff. Who want a real life, want to want their life back this time around. Like before you go. You know, yeah. Like those people. Are you willing? Are you gonna take that risk? You know, maybe we can get you your life back before you go. And I think that's what both of us are in the business to do. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that perspective. And you're absolutely right. Like when you spoke about those patients that come in and they want to be healed and they believe that, you know, the pill is the answer. I mean, it could be because of the society we live in, the marketing that you mentioned, we're bombarded by the allopathic industrialization and institutionalization, like you mentioned. It could be a lot of different factors. It could be, you know, their family has been also taking medications and that's the way it's done. Uh, but there's also another side of it. So just being aware that there are other options is not very um, apparent to some people. You know, the awareness is just not uh, there. So number one is to be aware that we do have options and that's usually not presented. So you telling people that maybe medication is not the best way to go uh, is probably something they've never come into contact with before in the allopathic system. So it was wild to them to to hear this almost outrageous that you're not doing your job because that is what they're expecting of you. Uh, when they come into your office and ask to be healed or ask for help, that means that the pill it will be the answer. And if it's not the answer, then you're not a real doctor, you know? <laughs> so I absolutely- You get how crazy absurd that is. Yeah, yeah. It's so crazy absurd because in some ways, and now you're, you and your audience has heard my story, it's like you, you, you've never met anybody who's more a doctor than me, actually. Yeah. And, and, and I went right through the belly of the beast. I actually, have a, I actually can speak to this a little bit, if you allow. I do allow. Please go for no, it. No, 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 no. Not just you. I mean, you know, it's like them, you know, like, oh, as it turns out, my commitment is to your health and wellness like you don't even know. And that I'm willing to put myself on the line to let you know that that what you came for, that you think is going to make you better, isn't. And I care so much to actually risk our relationship by me telling you that this thing that you think that I have for you that's going to make you better isn't. And I get that I'm the only one who can give it to you. And if you really, you know, you walk into a, if you walk into a Whole Foods or, you know, if you walk into a Trader Joe's or whatever your favorite is, and you want to buy a 12 pack of Coca-Cola, go, go right ahead. But dude, it's, it's not, it's not medicine. It's not medicine. It's not going to make you better. I promise. It tastes good. It might, you know, it might taste good. Um, so I, I'm, you know, in some ways I'm here on customer service. You want, if you want the, what I have, here you go. Here's your Prozac. Here's your Trazodone. Here's your Seroquel. Here's your Depakote. Here's your Ativan here, you know, and don't forget to your PRNs on, on the way out the door. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and I have samples, you know, I have samples and all that. And it's like, if that's the way you want to go, then let's do it. Let's do it. But in all promise, let's relook at it in a few months because it may take us in a direction where you didn't suspect, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. And I also want to speak more into what you brought up about our perception of what is legitimate medicine and what is not. So if it's you know perpetuated by pharma and allopathic physicians and prescriptions, uh, then it's okay to have dependence on these things and have the band-aids with the razors and all of that, as long as, you know, the pain is not felt, you know, as long as that's suppressed, as long as it's not bubbling at the surface, it's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. But when we look at how people self-medicate with illicit substances, all of a sudden that's a no-no, right. In society, you know, yeah. somebody's on heroin, somebody is on magic mushrooms, somebody has their cannabis, um, you know, with that industry now happening, like you mentioned, and now it is being more um, pharmacologized. I don't know. Um, it, it's it's entering the pharma world. Now it's being regulated. Now we're extracting different components of cannabis, not just the full spectrum plants. So, you know, with all these things, our perception on what is medicine and what is healing and what is legitimate and what is an addiction and what is tolerance and 
what is psychological dependence and all of these concepts, you know, it all just depends on where you're looking from because yeah. all the people that are doing the illicit substances, what they're just doing is seeking to just get help and get healing and access the things that they believe will make them feel better. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We, we, if we, if you go with illicit and, uh, and legal or, you know, illicit and conventional, you, then we might make the mistake to do, which I think, uh, you know, you're obviously got your finger on the pulse of this uh, industry quite well in both areas. But to link like heroin, which is actually a laboratory, um, you know, laboratory created medicine that came out of the allopathic world into the streets and then became heroin right. after all. Um, that's it's what heroin is. not just the coffee plants that you're not, no, ingesting. No. No. no, no, it's not. But we be careful by saying heroin or magic mushrooms or cannabis. We start seeing that like magic mushrooms as they grow, you know, uh, you know, the mascaris or cannabis as it grows um, in whatever form, you know, it, whether it's sativa or indica or whatever you got going on there is how we split these things up is really interesting. So the value of the sacred um plant medicines uh, when sat in a ceremony, even a cannabis ceremony, for God's sake, um, is different than going out and getting stoned or going out and buying just, you know, blow your ass to the ground, um, uh, um, something at the dispensary, you know? Right. Um, Absolutely. But we group them together. We do. Because there's schedule one, but schedule one. yeah, so. Yeah, you almost can't, they, it's such a pervasive issue that even you and I put that line between sort of legal and illegal, prescribable and illicit, or, you know, like uh, schedule one, schedule two versus, uh, you know, grown on the, grown on mother earth, or, you know, right. it's like, um, it is. It's a crazy world out here. And, you know, what what we need to hear, first of all, what is healing and healing is really maybe looking at coming to grips with what's really so and not so about your real and honest, true, authentic life, like at any given moment. Mm. Is discomfort part of that? Yeah. Um, unfortunately, or maybe not unfortunate, it just is. Yeah. The answer is yes. You know. Uh, as far as I know, and I, I, I know I, I butcher this every time I bring it up, but, uh, you know, Buddha sat under a tree, right? He sat under a tree trying to figure out all the stuff. I can just imagine that guy, right? He's just like, okay, hold on. You can't you just see him just like, hold, hold on a second. I, <laughs> it isn't like he sat under a tree so that he could be worshipped by billions after he died. It was like, just hang on a second. Let me, I'm going to sit right here for a minute and... I'm going to try to figure, I'm going to figure this out. And so he sat there for like, you know, a few weeks, like then a few more weeks. But even when he got up, he figured out a lot of things. He did. I mean, a lot of things got dwindled down to being, you know, simple Cohen's and, you know, just, just impermanence. And, but suffering was part of it. Now, however you manage to deal with Buddha, one thing he made clear is that suffering in this life is part of it. Dealing with suffering is part of life. And it's as much part of life as air and water are. You know, it's like there is suffering to be had here. If we can honor that suffering by resonating with those who are suffering and by sharing our own suffering with those who are willing to listen to us, there is right there deep and total magic that occurs in the world of healing upon that moment. Even as I look at you right now and I get that it is possible and that you're actually hearing me, there is a resonance going on between the two of us that is so remarkable that everything gets reset in the world of love, connection, and healing right here, right now. No kidding. No need for nine months of therapy or nine years of analysis or nine prescription bottles right now. Boom. And that's that's just the truth again. Now, I'm not saying all of God, world's ills are cured at that moment. Or maybe I actually am. 
Yeah, I, I hear you. And I think what you're describing is like that every moment is its own universe where exactly. there is a possibility to heal. And I totally agree that we first need to define healing. You know, what is healing for this individual in front of us? What does that mean for them? You know, um, so exploring that and exploring the expectations of what they'd like from the therapy or the support that they're seeking to help them with their healing is first and foremost, because we don't know, you know, for them, we cannot know for them, we cannot know for another person. So having the space for, for them to communicate that, and again, the communication comes in and for us to be receptive to that. And if we are the person that resonates and can be supportive with that healing that they are seeking, then it is possible. Um, and so what you're speaking to is that life inevitably comes with a death, death sentence, right? So we're born into this world, not just to be all like fuzzy and comfortable all the time. That is not what life is. Life is a chance to have some comforts and some challenges in between into an inevitable death. That's just a fact of it. So if you're born in here, you're incarnated in your flesh, that's just going to be a fact that your flesh is also your uh, weakest armor, right? Because you can get hurt. You can get hurt physically. You can get hurt in your psyche and mentally. So just being here and having these facilities allows us for the vulnerability in the same facilities that we have or think we have, right? Think that we embody. And yeah. so that's just the truth of it. There's the the two sides of the coin. Like, yes, we can have pleasure <laughs> in here and, and life and love and all the happy stuff, but also we have a chance for the suffering and chances are you will have both, you know, you'll have a variety of experiences. You will not have just one, <laughs> you know, so, so the beauty yeah. is the reflection of both. And you actually wouldn't be able to know that you're having a beautiful and loving moment unless you compare it to the suffering that is also possible. And the only way you, for you to know suffering is to go through it. It's true too. Yep. Well said, beautifully said, you know, one of the things that you're reminding me of as you speak is I am a different person when I'm with me. When I wake up in the morning, my wife's next to me, and that's great. I have the coolest wife ever, by the way. But uh, that said, uh, she is. She's the best. And um, until I'm in conversation with someone, I'm not this guy. When, when I'm hanging out with me, I got no idea that this is sitting underneath this. I have no idea. None. None. I'm trying to put my foot in front of the other. I'm trying to figure out if I want, you know, coffee or tea. I'm trying to figure out if, what my day looks like or if I screwed up a schedule or if I screwed up an email or if I hurt somebody or if I, you know, disappointed another person. And it's a whole new life until you connect. You know, I've been with me 100 percent of the time. And so I don't shock myself as being any different or weird or radical. I'm just me. I mean, I just am trying to make it through the next minute. Um, I do hear frequently enough that I'm, you know, radical or interesting or compelling or something. Like that. And I, I t you know, after you hear it enough and it's like, OK, maybe there may. I don't know. Maybe there's I, maybe there's something there. I don't know. Um, it almost doesn't matter. But one thing that is really certain is that when I'm in conversation with somebody who I'm listening to and listening with, uh, an entirely new experience arises than one then that occurs when I'm with myself. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's part of the creative process, which you talk about, too. So like communication opens up ways that we can create new realities exactly and that's how you shift somebody's perspective and beliefs is if through communication there's a new levels of awareness that both sides can experience and your life will never be the same again once you shift your perspective that's right it can't be it can't be the same again you know it can be pretty similar is that when you get with you that can look pretty familiar 
Like when Elvis was, you know, I might, like yesterday I had, I, you know, so this is a good example. <clears throat> yesterday about 8, 8 p.m., uh, I suppose it was closer to 6 p.m. Anyways, um, I had this conversation with one of my students and she's 80 and she's learned how to be a podcaster and now she's throwing her entire life at podcasting and she is she is just a flat out goddess angel. She's just, just consistent, flat out goddess angel. And the conversation that we had, I didn't know this so much about her. I knew she was cool. I knew she was very cool. But we had a conversation yesterday where it was like, wow. I, both of us shared at levels that neither of us had shared in, you know, with anyone ever, even wives and husbands. It was just like, wow, wow, wow. This flat, what a beautiful experience. And then, you know, when the conversation was over, I came, I told my wife, I just had this amazing conversation and that and that. And then life came and started taking care of the cats and eating dinner and, uh, you know, getting ready for bed or waking up this morning, checking my schedule, missing an appointment, all the things that happen in a particular day. <laughs> and uh, I forgot about that conversation I had with Dorothy. But when you bring it up now, I really get that that was one of the pinnacles of my life when it was going on, and it was only half a day ago. But life does take us back to being with ourselves, which then seemingly has a familiarity to it, you know, like old neural patterns that are here. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know you, Fred. Oh, yeah, you're, <laughs> you know, I know you, Fred. Yeah, yeah. You know, sort of dealing with me as an add-on, as a... Um, and until I can get back into exciting conversations. So in my book, which I think you kind of referenced here, The Creative Eight, which is the first book I wrote, um, Healing Through Creativity and Self-Expression, I really speak to how important it is ultimately to be with others. And not only creativity as a way of alleviating some of the uncomfortable symptoms of, or the uncomfortable experiences of being a human, but uh, when all else fails, really getting that um, helping anyone do anything is the trump card to make this all work. You know, actually being with another person, uh, helping them do anything. Um, we don't know a higher level of uh, providing care for ourselves and others. Like what happened at Fairlawn Center in 1980 when I got there and started talking to those kids. It was like, oh, this is... I only wanted to stay long enough to get orientation and then get, you know, buy a car and keep driving around the country. And there I was, here I am 40, what, 42 years later, still, still dancing a dance of what happened in January of 1980. You know, I'm still just a glorified childcare worker, even today. <laughs> yeah. And children aren't defined by age either. That's true. As, as you Great mentioned point. about your client. So what you're saying is that um, essentially your <clears throat> life became meaningful when you were at service, you were providing service that was aligned to you. Exactly. And humans need that. You know, we need to find meaning in order for us to find joy in our life. And we also need to communicate so like we are social creatures we can't i mean there could be profound maybe experiences such as uh, the buddha one that you referenced where you sit down with yourself and uncover your thoughts but ultimately we also need connection so we need to service you know provide a service and value and also we need to connect yeah. and we can combine those two together and create new things yeah yeah, you know, in these days, these are difficult times, it's super challenging times every day. And, you know, that we have to do all our communication at these pixelated, you know, rectangular flat screens and, <laughs> and uh, of all sizes, you know, that's all that we do. And we call that a communication, which is it is, by the way. And it was well, that's why I love doing telepsychiatry, because I really got to dig, you know, so deeply, so quickly into the heart of the matter. That was really cool to figure that out. The. Um, you know, the, let's see where I was going with this. The, um, hmm, kind of forgot, I think. What, uh, I'll get back to it. Sorry. Yeah. So I really want to thank you, Dr. Fred, for your time and sharing your journey and your wisdom. I'd love to just jump into a really quick rapid fire round to ask you a few more profound questions. All right. Okay. So if there's one thing that you think is at the heart, 
of mental illness or how we perceive it. What is that? Hmm. Unfortunately, I would, I think the thing is, is that we blame and shame of ourselves for doing wrong. Uh, you know, when we hurt another person or we fail to meet our own standards or we um, are naturally confused, I believe the heart of all mental illness is that we want a, an excuse or we want a not excuse is kind of too large of a word. We want um, a way to relinquish responsibility for the things in our life that we're not doing as well as we wish. You know, so if we get a bad grade on a test, we maybe have ADHD. Or if you get, if you're, you know, troubled in a crowd, maybe you have social anxiety. Or if you're sad about the present or your future or a lost relationship, maybe you have some clinical depression. It's like, if we can pass that on to a mental illness, it serves a purpose to um, relinquish responsibility for our life. So that's one point. I think the other point is, as diagnosticians, if we can diagnose, there's something really interesting about that must make us okay. Right. From our perspective, we get to say that you are off kilter. <laughs> And if we can do that, if we then we must have been given some stamp of approval for representing that which isn't abnormal. Finally, I don't think we have a very good definition of normal at all anywhere over time ever. Um, you know, some people go with Freud said work and play and all that's like or work and love, I believe, is what he said. Um, the. Uh, Without a definition of normal, it sure leaves open like infinite definitions of what abnormal could be. So uh, mental illness is a construct, you know, it's a conversation. It is subject to transformation. It is created on the fly. I imagine there'll be a mental illness related to COVID soon. I'll be, you know, if there isn't already um, and sort of and then it becomes a real condition afterwards and it's one where people adhere to it for a lot of reasons but i think primarily it's about taking responsibility for all of life including the stuff that we have no control over I'm yeah sure I, does that, I hope that answered your question yeah that was really good because i think we kind of took the concept of oh there's a disease or an exogenous agent that is the issue, you know, it's never me that's the issue. It's always, you know, bacteria, virus, just like COVID or whatever. And they infiltrated me. And so it, it, you kind of become synonymous and you ally yourself with your diagnosis, whether it is an infection or something else. And so you, you also do the same for chronic disease or mental illnesses. Like, oh, I just have diabetes, you know? So it's like, you're relinquishing your responsibility, but also your control over that disease state by surrendering to that diagnosis. Exactly, um, at, the, at the effect of leaf in the river, those kinds of things, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, and we can relinquish it back. We can take back the responsibility and therefore also the control by saying, okay, I, currently have the diagnostic criteria for this disease state. However, it is reversible if I do this or this or that, and I will, you know, I will be doing this to see if I can reverse it rather than, um, you know, I will be having this disease state for life hanging over my head and I will, you know, have to keep escalating my medication doses to yep. just manage it. Yep. 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 Well, you know, you have to manage it. If there's a razor blade embedded in the Band-Aid, then increasing your medicines is the only way to manage it. Yeah. So in one way, mental illness is no different than any other disease state. But in another way, because you can't often see some things um, or perceive the same thing as your patient, you know, there is this disconnect that forms. Um, and then also, like you said, people that are diagnosed with an illness assume that other people around them are all quote unquote normal. 
And that's just not the case. The doctor may be, you know, taking some medications, um, you know, their best friend might be taking some medications, but because everybody's kind of shamed and hiding it, there is no conversation around it. They assume everybody else is not suffering. Everybody else is not taking medications. Everybody else has a normal mental health. It's just me. So I think it's also isolating. Definitely. Definitely true. Yeah, there's so many factors that keep the whole the whole machine in, in motion, for sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, last kind of complex question. Um, what are your best tools in terms of alternatives that are more effective than conventional therapy for mental mm -hmm. illness? So, I, you know, I think that communication and connection are the number one tools. Um, I Ultimately, though, I mean, if you're going to be by your own, if you're going to be by yourself, you know, mindfulness in, in some ways, uh, meditation or sitting is a really, really uh, great way to get through life. Uh, just spending a little minute uh, being the observer of your own self, of your own life, you know, watching and, and learning about the absurdities of the things that you think you know or don't know. Uh, meditation is really interesting uh, that way. And then, you know, nutrition is so critical. Um, and, you know, I'm no, I'm no super pro at it, although we do eat extremely well. Um, but what we put in our system, we become. And I think that there's, we, 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 um, we may minimize that, that, that even a cup of coffee really affects us drastically. Mm -hmm. Or even, um, you know, one, like I have a few families that love Chipotle and it's like, oh, I don't eat, I eat Chipotle much, but I think I've had it once or twice. It's pretty good. It's really good, really tasty, you know, but really being careful about what we put into our senses, not only our mouth, but in our eyes and our ears and what we touch and what we, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I think that all of that is really important. Uh, then I would say loving yourself, you know, pampering yourself, like doing some things, even if it's a, a warm bubble bath or if it's a... Um, a walk in nature or like actually taking care of the temple that is called you this idea that this body of yours could use a little rest uh maybe a nap or you know pets can be super helpful i mentioned my cats desposito winston and valentino are they just own me these three cats are so <laughs> they're so awesome they're so awesome you know and so pets can be really 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 uh grounding and uh Recently, you know what I've been doing the last couple of years is I wake up and I take a cold shower and I do that every day, every single day um, for about three minutes. And it's as cold as cold can be. And it's not, you know, it sounds miserable. Some people really think it's not that good. Um, I, I Once you start doing it, there's such deep value in sort of stunning yourself, sort of like what happens to a hard boiled egg right when it comes off of the boil. You know, you put it in cold water and the shell yeah. breaks away from the egg. I think that there's something like that that happens where I become more versatile and aware and awake and alert. Um, so that might be a, one of the greatest return on investments out there is this one to minute, one minute cold shower in the morning. And that will that will alter lives in a positive way. So I'm liking that one these days, too. Yeah, it's very invigorating. It really is. is. Like you mentioned. Yeah, it really and, is. And stimulating. Uh, so I love that. And I love the pets um, suggestion because it speaks to that love. So not only the self-care and self-love, but sharing that love with someone else. And yeah. it's just so easy to share with a pet because we have no expectation of return on our love. Like we are able to give freely. And especially with cats, we're not really expecting much affection or anything else in return. Um, so with humans, the, the relationships are a little bit complex because, you know, the dynamics of like, OK, I showed you this love. So I'm hoping that you will return it in this way because that's how I want to receive affection. But with pets, it's totally different. And it's just completely free love, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I love that. And uh, so last fun question for you, uh, you mentioned food. So what's your favorite thing to eat and what's your favorite hobby? Um, let me check one thing. Okay, what is my favorite? Food and hobby. Let's see, my favorite food. I mean, if I really, I like sushi. I like uh, I like sushi. You know, really good sushi. I like um, anything that Alexandra puts on the table is 
always amazing as she throws, you know, she puts, she's a hundred percent Ukrainian by the way. And, um, so there's, there's like an Eastern European bent to it, but more than that, she's so creative. She's the most creative person I've ever met. So whatever we put together, you know, there's always like, um, it's always, it's always fabulous. So, but sushi and I think my dark side, my dark horse is uh, like, I love potato chips. And I love pizza. I, you know, I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. I love both those things. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I think that's, I think, you know, and I, I, I can go on runs. I drink celery juice every morning, but it's, you know, it's like, uh, the food, you know, a good steak is really great. A great, you know, a great um, veggie stir fry is super cool. Some great Thai food is great. Mexican food is just amazing at the highest quality. I love Mediterranean food. The other day I had some um, some uh, shawarma from a, from a Mediterranean place here down the road in Sacramento. And it was like, it was so yum, you know, it was so good. And so I like, I like eating good food. And what was the second question? What's your favorite hobby? Ah, um, I, I like working out. I love being, I think if I had to say anything, it's about, it's about getting in nature somehow in more, if I, I, it's harder and harder to find myself outside, you know, um, for lots of reasons, but we have some very good paths to walk or going down by the river, you know, there's a, several beautiful rivers around here and it's easy, easy enough. Or going out at night, you know, and just uh, taking a look at the stars or, or the moon and I are really, really good together. And I, the moon is my best friend. So um, capturing the moon on any given evening with the stars that surround her is a, and I, I, there's something really warming about that. But I love talking to people too. That's a pretty cool hobby as well. Yeah, yeah, I could tell. And that's very poetic with the moon. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Fred, for coming on again. And by the way, I'm also born and raised in Ukraine. So tell hello to your wife. Where? Where? Kherson. She's in Viv. She grew yeah. up in Viv. And she, when did you come I, over? I was nine, so it was back in 98. She, she came in 89. She came before, that's right before, right before the... The fall, yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're hundred percent Ukrainian. Well, I was born and raised there, but my roots are actually Belarusian. Belarusian. Okay, yeah. cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, heart to you too and your family and everyone affected. Yes. Big deal. Yes. Prayers with everyone. With all that said, I have a summit coming up, the We the People Summit, where hundred percent of the proceeds are going to Ukrainian um, uh, humanitarian aid. And uh, maybe you might want to be a piece of this, but humanitarian aid and then for refugees and children and uh, those who are displaced, the 1.5 million or more who are displaced but also all the war-torn areas in the world where our true voices are being suppressed. Um, the summit is on March 26th. It's wethepeoplesummit.online. There's all sorts of great people, who, influencers there, who are gonna tell us about how they found their true voice and how they became influencers and teach us to be influencers in our own right, like right now. And uh, so all the proceeds are headed in that direction. It's a 100% fundraising event. and. So I might as well pass that along to your listeners as well. Love it. I'll do that. So even if we don't air before then, I'll pass that along and um, still be there. It'll still be there. You can, yeah, you can still get it afterwards. All right. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I'll have all your links and the summit link in the show notes. And um, it was really exciting and amazing to get this chat into today. I mean, really, really great conversation. You did beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Holistic Pharmacy Podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed creating it. If you learned something new from it, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review and share it with a friend who might love it too. You can find me on any of the podcast and social media platforms by looking up Holistic Pharmacist or Dr. Marina Booksov. Thank you for your support and see you next time.